Hi, this is Steve Pallack. Let's turn over this record and play the B-side. I've got a feeling we've got a hidden gem on our hands. It's Season 5 of the Bait and Switch Podcast. Welcome back to the Bait and Switch Podcast. My name is Jim Martin, along with my co-host, as always, Chris Beyer. Hello, Jim. Hey, Chris. So our guest tonight um, has uh, done many, many, many things in his lifetime. We're going to start off this segment with his college baseball umpiring career. So Dan Ronan is here with us tonight. He's done some college baseball umpiring and also uh, some college basketball refereeing as well. Is that right? Small college basketball, I got offered a contract for one of the larger conferences. And again, because my television and radio career was really kind of taken off, I had to forego doing that. But I mean, I got a letter from the ACC to say, we'd like you to join the staff, only for me to tell them I can't do it because my broadcasting career is kind of going great guns. Let's talk a little bit about umpiring. How did that go? How did you get into it? What was it like? I was at the University of Wisconsin, and I was trying to find a way to pay for my tuition. And I was working with a guy at the radio station I worked with, a guy who was just a tremendous broadcaster. And his name was Bill Short, legend in Madison, legend, legendary broadcaster. But Bill was also a college baseball umpire. He did work in the Big Ten and worked in the Wisconsin State Conference. And Bill said to me one day, you know, you got to come out on the field with me and try this. And I said, okay, Bill, I will. So I went out and bought some equipment and tried it. And I thought to myself, man, this is really cool. And within a short period of time, I found myself working adult men's league baseball. I worked at uh, Breeze Stevens Field in Madison, which Chris knows where that's at on East Washington Avenue. I worked in a men's amateur league called the Home Talent League, which is a great league, still going strong 80-some-odd years later. And all of a sudden, I I found out that people kept thinking, boy, you know, you're pretty good at this. And I was pretty good at it. So I decided at the end of college to go to umpiring school. And uh, there's a side story in this. Madison, about 1981 or 82, got a minor league baseball team that played out at Warner Park. Uh, where the Northwoods League is at now. And they were called the Madison Muskies. So my bright idea was to let the umpires stay at my apartment because they weren't making any money at all. So I let the umpires stay at my apartment for two summers. And lo and behold, three of the guys made it the big leagues. Mm. Uh, Gary Cedarstrom, Gary Cedarstrom, who had a great career in the big leagues. Uh, Mark, Mark Hirschbeck, who had to retire because of a uh, leg injury and Larry Vanover, who's still on the field today and is a dear, very dear friend of mine. Uh, as a matter of fact, he just, that he just texted me a minute ago. That was him. <laughs> texting me here. Uh, he, uh, he, these guys all made it to the big league. So I, I spent two summers with these guys in a ball and uh, it just worked out that, you know, that I went to umpire school I went down to Florida to school and I did really well. And uh, I qualified for a job, but three days before the school ended, back to what I was telling you before, 
my brother died in an automobile accident and uh, died instantly in Jefferson County. And so I, uh, I, I decided uh, I had a chance to go back the next year, but I got offered a job in broadcasting with the old Mutual Radio Network and had an opportunity at age 23 to work with uh, Larry King on the old All Night Show. And I just said, you know, I'll do baseball at the high school and college level, and then I'll see about it. And I started, you know, finding more success on the broadcast side of things. And it, I did it for, until 1996, and then hey, I hung it up. What makes a good ump other than just good eyesight? Judgment, timing. There's so many intangibles. Being able to handle situations, that's the biggest thing. I mean, a lot of guys can handle the routine day-to-day stuff that goes on. But when crazy stuff happens, when there's a goofy play, such as the other day in that uh, White Sox game where they had that, that crazy triple play with the eight-to-five triple play. I don't know if you guys saw that. I did not see that. Uh, I'll have to go look for uh, it now, though. <laughs> yeah. Center fielder made a, a, a great play, threw the ball back into the infield and tagged two runners out at uh, second base for a triple play. When, when crazy stuff happens, and now with replay, you know, being able to go to the headsets, you know, listen to the, talk to New York, deal with the guys in replay, and then come back and, you know, turn to the camera, explain everything like that. It's, it's being able to handle situations. It's handling people. It's managing, managing conflict. And, and, and everything Everything these days, because of social media, whenever, whenever something stupid happens on the field, <laughs> well, the, the, the Twitter world has a, has a collective meltdown, and the announcers, who dare I say most of them are, uh, I don't want to use the word homers, but that's the closest word I can find to getting there. Most of those announcers are, are very supportive of their home team. Let's just put it that, that way. Yep. Uh, they have a collective meltdown. They don't understand that from an umpire standpoint, the umpire's job, no, they don't care who wins or loses. They don't care. Their job is to make, just make sure both teams have a good chance, an equal chance to win the game. That's all they care about. And that the game is played within the rule book. Do you remember, uh, I don't remember the pitcher's name. I think he was on the Tigers or the White Sox, maybe. But there was a he was he had a perfect game going. Uh, uh, yeah, it was the Jim Joyce play. Exactly right. Eleven right. years ago. Right. You know he's a good umpire, and Jim Joyce came, was a great umpire. Yeah, he came out right away and said, "Like I I blew the call." You know? Nowadays that play wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen right. because of instant replay. Right. They go they they go to the headsets immediately. The manager for the Tigers, who was Jim Leland at the time, yep. would come out and say would say Jimmy and would say, Jimmy, uh, we gotta, we gotta review this. Yep. And they'd say, okay, we're going to go to replay. Yep. And they'd look at the play and replay. And in 30 seconds, they'd look at the play. New York would look at it and say, Nope, it's not a, it's not a safe. It's an out. They'd flip the call and they would review it. And you know what? It would be a footnote in the game, Yep. a minor footnote. Yep. Yeah. Nowadays, right. Nowadays, those calls, they get fixed. New York fixes them. Yep. At the time, it was said that the commissioner, 
could actually overrule that and say he was out. But, but, but uh, my question is if now normally I would say no, you know, the umpire's call is what it, but immediately Jim Joyce came out and said that was wrong. That was a wrong call and the kid should get his perfect game. Why wouldn't they go back then and say, otherwise, What's the point of having the rule that the commission can, commissioner can change the the call? I don't I don't think there is such a rule. I don't know that for a hundred percent. But I'll tell you one thing: the best batters in Major League Baseball fail seven out of ten times. Mm-hmm. If you hit three hundred, if you oh, hit three hundred at good. the major league level these days, you're making fifteen or twenty million dollars a year. Yep. You're making big money, enough money to feed not just your kids or your grandkids, but your great grandkids. I mean. Mistakes happen. Yep. The Denkinger play from 30 years ago in the World Series, mistakes happen. Replay nowadays fixes it. Yep. And as, you know, as unfortunate as it was, I think that also showed, I don't recall the pitcher's name, but I think it also showed a side of society that we needed to, to have at that time where a guy lost his perfect game and something happened, and here we are, 10 or 12 years still talking about it. It's such a special moment, whereas if he, if he had got the perfect game, we would have talked about it for three or four days, and that would have been it. But here we are 12 years later saying, wow, wasn't that an interesting moment? And the fact yeah. the next day Jim Joyce you know, came out for the ground rules at Comerica Park and was in tears about it because yeah. it just so happened he had the plate the next night, and the pitcher came out and brought the lineup card out and they hugged and embraced. Yep. And it just, there, it, there was a, and they actually wrote a book together about it. They actually wrote a book. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. They wrote a book about it, which I read, which is pretty good. And, and, and everybody remembers it. So did it, would it have been better for it to have been a perfect game? Yes. But in reality, things worked out. Okay. Right. Yeah. I do remember how gracious the pitcher was with, yeah. with the whole thing. Now you mentioned Larry King. Uh, where you kind of had this choice of going down the umpire path or going down the broadcasting path. Did you work directly with him? Were you in? I worked with... down the hall from him. I worked uh, 35 feet from him. And there were t- we interacted a lot. I was responsible for the newscasts heard on the King Show, uh, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning. They had you know newscast at, right at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. And then at the bottom of the hour, and those were my newscast that I was often the producer for. And I was working, I'll tell a funny story. I was working one night, uh, one night, Larry wasn't on the air. Jim Bohannon was uh, on the air and Jim has now the, been doing that time slot for the last 25 years. And I was on the air the night that the actor Cary Grant died in, uh, in Iowa, in Iowa, in Iowa before a show, before a show, he's doing this one man show. He dropped dead of a stroke in his dressing room. So one of the things you have to do in that situation is get some reaction from one of his old Hollywood friends to talk about it. And the anchor would say, so-and-so, so-and-so reacted to the death of Cary Grant. And you play the soundbite. So I picked up the phone and I started thumbing through the Rolodex, which you don't have Rolodexes now. Now you got now you got everything in their phone. So I picked up the phone and I called a number in Palm Springs, California, and I called the residence of one Bob Hope. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> and the but the butler answers the phone and he says, and he's like Alfred from the old Batman show. <laughs> he says, Good evening, Hope Residents. And I said, I said, Good evening. This is Dan Ronan calling from Mutual Radio in Washington, DC. Is Mr. Hope available? And he said something to me that I will never forget. And it cracked me up. And the butler said, Okay, who died? <laughs> <laughs> getting these calls all the and time I, huh? <laughs> and i said Kerry grant just died about an hour ago in davenport iowa he said one moment please and he put the phone down and then about 30 seconds later the phone picks up hello bob hope here how you doing and i told my <laughs> i told my engineer i said hit the record button yeah hit right. the record button start recording so i said Tell me about, you know, tell me about Cary Grant. And Hope did like three or four minutes of spontaneous stories of Hope in the old MGM studio days and, you know, drinking and having a good time with Cary Grant and the whole bit. And then he finished. He said, is that enough? And I said, Mr. Hope, I'm I'm in great shape. I said, I can't thank you enough. And okay. Call anytime. Good night. Hangs up the phone. <laughs> and I had, I had four minutes of Bob Hope talking about Cary Grant. And we chopped it up, you know, eight or nine different sound bites and, and ran, ran the oxide off that tape for the next 12 hours. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, that Larry King show in its day was a big deal, was it not? 535 stations at its peak. Wow. Yeah. Which was huge. It's is huge. And I mean he was he was heard from coast to coast, from 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 Maine to Alaska, from the Florida Keys to, you know, the US Canadian border. And he had he had great guests. I mean, every night he had a great guest come through the studio. We would uh Tom Clancy, the great author who wrote The Hunt for Red October and the Jack Ryan series, uh Charlie Daniels, the, the musicians from his group came by, uh, Shirley MacLaine, uh, Jackie Gleason came up one night back when, you know, before Gleason died. Uh, a lot of these folks are all, have all passed away, but in his era, uh, former president Ford came up one night, Tip O'Neill, the, the house speaker came up one night and I'm sitting there in the newsroom and it was just every night about 1030 or so you'd have, uh, You'd have some famous guests come up. And the funny thing was the building that we were in was this just nondescript office building. And it was very hard to get into the building. And so one night I, uh, I was trying to get in. I was coming in for my shift and I'm trying to get into the building and I'm going into the underground parking garage. And I see this man shuffling around the building trying to get into the building. And I said, it's got to be a King Show guest. So I yelled at this guy. I said, Come on, come on, get in the car and I'll, I'll, I'll help you out here. And it turned out it was a guy by the name of Father Lawrence Jenko. And the name doesn't ring a bell. Lawrence yeah. Jenko, he was, he was held hostage in Beirut, Lebanon for seven years. And some guy said to him the last words he heard before he ended up, you know, being taken hostage were, get in the car. And he just sort of had this look of panic on his face. And I said, I, I realized immediately what I did. I said, I said, don't worry. I'm with the King show. I'll get you in the building. And he was like, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Another guest who had problems getting into the building was uh, Eddie Albert. 
the the actor who was on the old Green Acres show. I don't know if you remember the Green Acres yeah. show from, uh-huh. but but he was he was coming up to the King show, and uh, he couldn't find couldn't make the elevators work, and so I went thirteen twelve floors because we were on the twelfth floor twelve floors with him just angry as could possibly be. What the <laughs> and and I just sat there and. Uh, Mr. Albert, I'll get you up to the other. I'll get you up there. What type of a two-bed operation? Said, Don't worry, so we'll we'll get you up there. And so every night it was somebody famous, and it was always a lot of fun. I mean, it was it was a real exciting place to be at and to work with work with a guy like Larry, who was who in his day was just a was a brilliant broadcaster. All these people in studio, they didn't do radio, uh, didn't do telephone interviews. No, they'd all come into the studio. Larry would do three hours with him from midnight to 3 a.m. One thing I heard about Larry King is that he didn't prepare that much for his interviews, that he wanted things to be fresh. Did that lead to some awkwardness or was it uh, the method to his madness? If it did, he pulled it off and he got that idea, I'm told, from the great actor and comedian Jackie Gleason. And the story goes is that back when Gleason was doing the Honeymooners, the famous 39 episodes that you see rerun, you know, all night and still being run to this day, Gleason didn't rehearse. They would just, they would have an idea of a script and they'd roll the cameras and all that interaction with, 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 with his other actors on the show was a lot of it was, was ad lib and Larry, (laughs) Larry came up in Miami in the 1950s and 60s as a talk show host in Miami. And in the 1960s, that's where Gleason was doing his uh, CBS show, was out of uh, South Florida. He was based in South Florida. So Larry and Gleason became friends, and Gleason sort of imparted this thinking on him that if you're going to do something, you need to be spontaneous. And it, it needs to be spontaneous, and it just worked out. That's how we do it. Yeah, there you you know. Know. So, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, now another place that you were involved with, maybe at the at the outset of its uh, inception, I'm not sure, is CNN. Were you at CNN in the early days? I was there from 1988 to 2002. 2002, 2002. Yeah, I was. I started as a uh, as a writer in the newsroom, and I uh, worked my way up to correspondent. I had uh, almost 15 years there, and it was a great place to work. I worked with some really phenomenal anchors and broadcasters and producers, and uh, some of them have moved on. Some of them are still there Mm -hmm. uh, to this day. It really was a a really good place to work because it was at a time when the news really was the star. Uh, You had uh, Oklahoma City. You had the Oklahoma City bombing. You had Waco. I was in on the coverage of the 2000 election, major stories overseas that developed at that time. Every day there was something going on. I was working the day that in South Africa that they ended apartheid. I was working at CNN the day that they had the Tiananmen Square riots and uh, the uprising in Tiananmen Square. Uh, the wall coming so, down. Yeah, I mean, it was it was all all stuff that was you know, great stories that I had, a, I had a little piece of, a little sliver of. When did CNN start? Was that 80, 84? When was that? June 1st, 1980. CNN is 42 years old this year. I worked with 
dozens of folks who were there in the beginning and they they were proud to be man there was a loyalty thing that they were they were the originals they were the ones they were the the pioneers they were the ones that uh you know crossed the mountain pass during winter time you know mm-hmm. they they pulled it off bernard what was his name bernard shaw uh, oh, bernard bernard shaw. Uh, bernard shaw what about I, uh, I worked i worked with him for a while sure yeah. what about ted turner did you know ted was he still I, I didn't charge? know ted but i would see ted occasionally uh we had a 24 hour restaurant in the building at cnn center uh it was called the hard news cafe of all things and uh I would come in a lot of times I'd be on the overnight shift to the early morning shift and you would see Ted come into the, uh, Ted had an apartment in CNN center. He had a, a nice, nice size apartment up at the top of CNN center. And you'd see Ted at two or three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, um, come into the, uh, the cafeteria and wanted to get coffee and eggs and, uh, a bite to eat. So he'd come down and, Hey, how you doing? Glad to say, how anything going on in the news day? And you say, well, it's, you know, it's, story in Europe or something. Ah, wow, pretty cool. He was always he'd come into the newsroom all the time. Did they did the did the employees buy into his vision? Was he a big idea guy? Was was it a cult of personality to some extent? No, no. We revered Ted and I still revere him for what he what his vision was. I mean he wanted to bring straight down the middle news to as many people as possible. And I thought his vision was extraordinary at the time. I mean, 42 years ago, all news, I mean, like a all news radio station, it was, it was a tremendous vision of, uh, you know, it was, it was a gamble. I mean, he put all his money, all the money he had on the table to get CNN up and running. He put everything he had and leveraged everything he had to do it. And it was a tremendous gamble and it's, it's paid off. I mean, I know people get on CNN and they, they give it, you know, give it the business and everything, but the world's a better place because CNN's doing its thing. Yep. So, uh, so CNN and then CBS News or did CBS News come first? I worked at two local stations. I worked at a st- station in Atlanta, Fox 5, uh, WAGA, and it's a lot like Channel 32 in Chicago. And I had a great run there. I mean, I was there for 9-11. I was there. Uh, uh, I covered some great stories. The craziest story I covered was a story called the Tri-State Crematory Scandal. And it's a story about a guy up in northwest Georgia who uh, ran a crematory. And unfortunately, he wasn't cremating bodies. He was just leaving the bodies in his 16 acres of property and uh, one day of uh, Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day weekend, uh, 2002, uh, a propane, uh, a propane, uh, uh, you know, gas guy who's coming by to deliver fuel discovered there were bodies in the backyard and he called the local, yeah, called the local sheriff's department and they found, uh, all told about 400 bodies on the backyard. What? Why would he not just, why wouldn't he cremate them? <laughs> Do we know? Uh, he was, well, okay. Let me just sort of give you a little bit of history. This is the area in Northwest Georgia that is now the area that is represented in Congress by one Marjorie Taylor Greene. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So it's way up in Northwest Georgia. If you know where that is, way up in <laughs> yeah. Northwest Georgia. Uh-huh. 
It is very rural. Uh, it is predominantly white. He was an African-American fella running a family-owned business, and he was successful in, in this community where he was clearly a minority. He was got started getting interested in politics, and I've always thought that his political ambitions uh, sort of took over his complete disgust for what he was doing in terms of his career. It was a family business. His, uh, I don't recall if it was his grandfather or his father, one of the two, but it was run by an elderly, uh, you know, elderly man. And he, he had gotten ill. Ray Brent, Ray Brent Marsh was the guy's name. And uh, Ray Brent was told, uh, you got to run the business. And Ray Brent didn't want to run the business. He was a college football player with NFL aspirations probably could have made it in the NFL and he didn't want to be at a crematory in Northwest Georgia. And then, so he started getting involved in politics and I think he was just like, I don't want to do this and I hate this business and I can just leave him in the backyard. (laughs) Actually, I think I've got to figure it out. You know, in politics, you got to be careful about your past because people will say, we know where the bodies are buried. If you never bury them, then then you you stay out of trouble. There you go. Stay out of trouble. Yeah, talk yeah. about skeletons, right? Yeah. Hey, you know, backing so, up a little bit to CNN, you kind of hinted that you were at CNN when it was a news network. And all these news networks have become very personality-driven and very uh, uh, opinion-driven. Do you pine for the time when it used to be more like you were on board? And do yeah. you think there's a market for well, a, I do, a CNN I market. currently? I do think there's a market and I'll tell you what I watch a lot of because I think it's quite good. Um, Both CBS and NBC and ABC have got streaming services, uh, NBC news. Now CBS, uh, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's the CBS streaming service. Uh, There's also another service called newsy, which is out on there. It's a streaming service. So they're straight kind of straight down the middle newscast, you know, I love watching Rachel Maddow because she's great on television. I try to get some analysis from her. But during the day, if I've got the TV on, I just want to know what's going on. I don't want it laced with opinion. I don't want people telling me what they think. I don't care what they think. Tell me what you know. That's the way I've always been brought up. That's, that's part of my DNA since, you know, since I've been doing this a long time. Uh, so you're kind of the Forrest Gump of media here, Larry King and... Sirius FM and CNN, any other places that you've lighted on in media uh, that yeah, might be interesting? I produced speeches at the White House for President Reagan. Uh, I, I was the pool producer for, for two of his speeches uh, at the White House. I've, I've done uh, a speech for former Speaker O'Neill. Uh, when he was Speaker, I, did, I, pro- I was the pool producer for him. Uh, I've been to... Uh, in the eye of two hurricanes with uh, TV stations covering that. I've been on Good Morning America doing that. Uh, I think I've been in 46 or 47 states and 16 countries. Wow. So, I mean, I, I've, gotten, I've gotten to travel the world on someone else's nickel, and it's a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, you know, it's someone else's credit card. They, they tell me where to go. Tornado, hurricane, train derailment, uh, whatever it is, I, I did it. At my core, I'm a reporter. My first job in the business at age four, 13 
I was 13 when I got hired, was at WKRS and on Highway 120 on Belvedere Road in Waukegan. Okay. I mean, I started covering the city council meetings in Grays Lake and in Round Lake and Waukegan and Zion and in Lake County, Highland Park. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's where I started. That's where my beginnings were. So at my core, whether I've been doing radio or television or I've been doing print or online, whatever it is, I'm there as a reporter. I'm not there to give opinions. I'm not there to, uh, you know, tell everybody how I feel about something. My job is to be there as someone who is observing it and then in the best possible manner that I can putting it together, whether it's a radio report, a television package, or, or a, or a, a 2,800 word print story. It's to be a reporter. That, that's what I am in my core. And that, that's what I'm most proud of. Well, Dan, we want to thank you for coming on the show. We've kept you up late. It's almost midnight there in uh, Maryland where you're at. So we want to thank you for staying up late with us. Well, well it's been fun, you know, because Harry Carey's got to come out of, it's just about time to start drinking at 12 o'clock. And if you're going to go out and go to the bars, you need to get sloshed from 12 to 4. And he does a Harry Carey impression, which we (laughs) talked about in our our pre-interview. Well, Dan, we got to get you out of here so you can get to bed here at midnight. So uh, thanks for coming on our show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. We really appreciate taking the time. Thank you. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch Podcast when we talk with longtime cyclist, coach, race promoter, sponsor, journalist, and author, Bill Humphreys. You've made it to the end of yet another Bait and Switch Podcast. Spread the word.